Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Andrew McDermott. On this episode, my guest is Nancy Piercy, professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University and a fellow of the Discovery Institute. She is author of books such as Total Truth, Saving Leonardo, and Love Thy Body. Over a series of four episodes, I'm speaking with Nancy about a chapter she wrote for a book called Mere Creation, Science, Faith, and Intelligent Design that was recently highlighted in four parts on a blog called More Than Cake. The piece is called You Guys Lost, Is Design a Closed Issue? Although many hold that Darwin conquered the design argument over 150 years ago, Nancy shows that there's good reasons to take another look at that and see if it really was one fair and square. Well, welcome back to the program, Nancy. Thanks for having me. A quick review, again, for listeners who haven't heard the first three episodes yet. In part one, you showed us why Darwin became the focal point of debate in the 19th century. In part two, you told us who Darwin's chief supporters were in the early days of his theory. And then in the third section, you showed us how Darwin and his allies attempted to sideline the design argument in order to discredit it. Well, today you'll tell us a bit about the political savvy behind the success of Darwin and his cohorts, showing the battle is not just about ideas, but about institutions and power. Well, let's start out with how did the new naturalistic epistemology the background, the explanation of the origin of life and the development of life promoted by Darwin and his supporters differ from the traditional dominant view of nature and life? Right, that's a good question. Up until now, since the start of the scientific revolution, it was very common for scientists to be theists, to be Christians, and they saw no contradiction between being a theist and and doing science. In fact, they thought that God had actually created the universe with an intelligible structure and that in in uncovering the laws of nature, we were thinking God's thoughts after him, as Kepler put it. And so Darwin was offering something truly new when he said, no, science can no longer involve a creator or a mind or an intelligence or design. It must be purely naturalistic or it's not really science. That's the epistemology. He was saying it doesn't qualify as science unless it's purely naturalistic. And many people in his day tried to sort of soften his claim. They tried to say, well, well, maybe we can accept the scientific part of Darwin, but not the naturalism. Maybe we can have a kind of theistic evolution where God is guiding or directing the process. And I think what many historians tell us is that it had a contradictory effect that in trying to extract the scientific theory from the philosophy, they discovered it was not possible. The two are inseparable. And the actual effect of their effort was the opposite of what they hoped for. By saying, well, we can accept this much of Darwin, but, but maybe not that part, they actually eased the acceptance, hastened the acceptance of philosophical naturalism, because in a sense, what they did is they said, well, God is not necessary to explain any of the actual facts of nature. God is sort of behind the scenes, maybe setting up the laws of nature, but not. But God is not evident in any sort of empirical way. God's work, God's handiwork is not evident in any empirical way. And so what happened, the, the implication was that nothing in nature really warrants the design inference. Nothing in nature requires God in order to explain it. So God has no significant function. 
divine action is not required for a true understanding of the world. And what the implication was then is that, well, fine, you can be a Christian if you want, but that's just your private personal belief. You can believe in a God if you want, but since it makes no difference in our actual knowledge of the universe, your belief in God becomes private and subjective. Hmm. Or um, as one, one historian puts it this way, God becomes a gratuitous philosophical concept derived from personal need. Hmm. And I thought that captures it so well. If God is not required to understand the world as we know it, then that becomes a private subjective belief for people who need that kind of crutch, essentially. So, and, and today you still see a lot of people who tried the same tactic. When I read articles, books by theistic evolutionists, I see this all the time. Can't we accept the science of Darwin and evolution, but just extract it from the naturalistic philosophical matrix in which it's embedded? And I think that once again, they're going to have the same impact that 19th century theistic evolutionists did. In many ways, what they are doing is they're reducing God to gratuitous philosophical concept derived from personal need. And once you do that, the next generation will quickly say, well, if, it's, if God is not really needed for any particular explanation of the universe, then, okay, fine. It's okay for people who need that kind of thing, but it's not, it's not reality. That's the impact I see of theistic evolution. Right. Well, as this debate progressed over the decades into the 20th century, how did it result in a struggle for power in social institutions? Yeah, I think this is sometimes something that's a little hard for scientists to get their minds around because most of us see it primarily as a battle of ideas. And, you know, we're intellectuals and we want to win the argument. We, we think mostly in terms of evidence and arguments and research. But it is true that the 19th century evolutionists won the day because they realized it's more than that. It's also a battle for institutions. And some historians have, have noted that uh, what the Darwinists of the 19th century decided was if theology is no longer a form of knowledge, then it doesn't belong in science at all. It does not belong in the university at all. And they became intolerant of any claim to an alternative mode of knowledge. They become intolerant of anything but purely scientific claims. And as a result, they did not just disagree with people who still hold, people who still held that theology is a form of knowledge, people who still held that richer epistemology. It was not enough just to drive out the, these ideas their advocates had to be driven out from the scientific community as well. And so supporters of Darwin also worked hard to occupy the seats of power and to establish a new scientific orthodoxy. So, for example, here's some of the things that historians will talk about. They'll say, well, for starters, Darwin carefully cultivated a nucleus of biologists who were prepared to support his work. He didn't just you know, throw it out there. He cultivated a group of people who were willing to support them, you know, the, the early converts. And those early converts followed some pretty basic political strategies. For one thing, they presented a united front in public. 
Um, in our last episode, we talked about how Herbert Spencer and Thomas Huxley both disagreed with Darwin on the scientific details. They did not accept his theory of natural selection, but that did not stop them from publicly becoming extremely, extremely aggressive proponents of Darwin's theory, which is fascinating because they were willing to say, you know, we can disagree on the details as long as we win the war. Hmm. Um, they were willing to accept as allies people who disagreed over the details. They made sure that when they spoke to the public, they would minimize any kind of controversy among them. Again, presenting a united front. Sounds they familiar. A, doesn't this, hey, isn't this starting to sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this, is more, this sounds more familiar today than it did even a few years ago because our universities have become so intolerant of any sort of dissent and disagreement. Yeah. And people are being deplatformed left and right for not towing the progressive line. And they also, and just like today, they made sure that people representing their views made sure they got into the ed- educational system as teachers. They took control of the editorial process at scientific periodicals so that those periodicals would be willing to accept papers from a Darwinian viewpoint. The very prestigious journal Nature, the, the title is just Nature, was founded at least in part as a vehicle for spreading the Darwinian message. So they were very adept at using power politics. And as you say, we're seeing it today as well. So this, this is more familiar now than it would have been just a short while ago. We, we are much more familiar with power politics invading the scientific and academic world in a way that it, it just it, it didn't even a few years ago. So this is, this is what we're up against today as well. People losing their jobs, people being deplatformed, people being kicked out of graduate programs if they dissent from the Darwinian orthodoxy. So how has the design community responded to Darwinism in recent decades to kind of undo some of this? Well, I think the most, you know, I think the most important thing is just doing good science. I think we've done some good work in terms of books, making the argument in terms of the logic, in terms of the philosophy of science. Philip Johnson sort of pioneered many of the arguments But then you've just got to back it up with good science and show that the design inference, the design hypothesis produces better science. No matter how good your arguments are, they're not going to win the day unless you can show scientifically that the design hypothesis leads to better science. And so the the founding of the Biologic Institute, I think, is really important. And the Walter Bradley Center, which is more recent, I think both of these are extremely important because when I talk in the classroom to my students and they see the arguments for design and against undirected Darwinian evolution, they just they say, well, why, why isn't this winning the day? Why is this? How can anyone not be persuaded? And then I have to tell them the arguments are wonderful. They're great. They're persuasive. But, you know, in our scientific day, it's not going to win until we have scientific data showing that it really works in the laboratory. So that's why, why I think the most important thing right now is what Biologic Institute and similar, similar groups are doing that are, you know, in the laboratory producing scientific evidence to show how the design theory works in real laboratory science. Yeah. So replacing bad science with good science, in other words. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. Yes, you can. You cannot 
win an argument with just a no, <laughs> with just a negative. Yeah. You can't say evolution doesn't does not explain the data without giving an alternative. Yeah. And as Mike Behe points out in his new book, Darwin Devolves, he's looked back at the last 20 years of evolutionary studies, and he's saying today, now is the best time to be evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of Darwin's theory, because we have the technology, we have the laboratory techniques, and it's a great time to be saying, look, here's what we're finding about evolutionary science. Yes, and and, uh, also coming together with Darwin deniers, of various kinds. I've been reading some of Susan Mazur's books, and she's done a lot of reporting on scientists. It's still a minority view, but there's a growing, because a growing minority of people who are saying, look, natural selection, we know that doesn't work. Natural selection is so passe. That's uh, Susan Mazur, M-A-Z-U-R. Several of the scientists that she's reporting on, and she's written several books now, they don't even consider Darwin, you know, part of the debate anymore. So I think it's really fascinating to stay up to date with the latest cutting edge research done by non-design scientists, because they too are seeing the limitations of Darwinism. It hasn't hit the public very much yet, but behind the scenes, scientists themselves are asking a lot of questions about Darwinian orthodoxy. Yeah. Well, it's exciting times to be looking at all of that. Well, thank you for taking us back to ground zero of the debate over Darwinian evolution, the 19th century, to get a clearer picture of Charles Darwin, his theory, and the response to it, and how it's retained its popularity today as a theory. It's clear that the battle to explain life and its origins is far from settled, and that a lot depends on the philosophical framework we carry into the debate. Well, great to have you on the show, Nancy, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. To read more of Nancy's writing on science, pick up a copy of her book, The Soul of Science. And to explore some of the social and moral implications of Darwinism, to show why getting this issue is so important, check out her latest book, Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. Learn more at nancypiercy.com. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.